Welcome to Good Life. I'm Dean Wilson. I'm so glad you're with us. Uh, whether you're joining us locally here on the airwaves in Santa Barbara, California, at TV Santa Barbara, or um, at goodlifetelevision.org, where we see you're, you're joining us from all over the world. And so we're grateful. You can also find us on all the social media platforms. Uh, great stories. Good Life is here to, to honor, to inspire, to encourage, to uplift. We dwell on the good. We also talk, we keep it real. And so we talk about real issues and real struggles and real suffering. And uh, of course, today in the world, there's, there is a lot of suffering. And so we don't ignore that, but we also shine light. And so that's what we're doing. And, and that's what we're doing today. Uh, I'm so excited about my guest. Josh Youssef is with me. Josh is the president and CEO of Help the Persecuted. Josh, welcome. Thanks for having me, Dean. Good to be on. Josh is, uh, they're headquartered in Atlanta, Georgia, and Help the Persecuted is, I've read about it, is, is a wonderful thing, doing wonderful things uh, throughout the world. And so we're going to talk about that. Um, and I know, Josh, pre previous to Help the Persecuted, you served for 17 years in, in global media ministry, and you've done all kinds of things. But tell us kind of about just you before we get into kind of the work kind of talk about you and kind of growing up and I know you uh, uh, you've been involved in ministry work for a long time but kind of talk about growing up and your background yeah happy to uh, grew up as a pastor's kid Michael Youssef is my father uh, pastor of a church here in Atlanta Georgia and uh, wasn't always a media you know ministry associated with my with my father's church but grew into that and when I left uh, university in the early 2000s, uh, my father had asked me to kind of come and work with him and help establish uh, media in the Middle East and North Africa, where our family is originally from, from Egypt. And uh, so I still helped sort of build out some of the radio programs, and then ultimately we moved into television. And in 2009, we launched channel uh, on multiple uh, satellite platforms throughout Europe, Middle East, and North Africa, both in Arabic, French, and English. And at that point, I began to build out uh, what we call a follow-up network and an audience relations network. So people would contact us. We would get two to 3,000 pieces of mail a month and, uh, or, and WhatsApp and Facebook posts and all kinds of communications back from people in the field. Uh, and then our field team would actually respond to those people uh, at sort of a frontline level. And so I built that network from Morocco all the way to Iraq um, of different team members, indigenous team members who would who would respond to people. And, and it was in that not too long after we built that satellite network that a lot of our field team were saying to us, you know, the problems that these people are dealing in, the problems that these people are facing are much more complex than I need a Bible. Uh, many of these people who've left Islam or come to faith in Jesus are being persecuted. Uh, they're being kicked out of their homes. They're, uh, you know, being ostracized from community. There's a, a term we use called civic death, which is when uh, somebody leaves Islam and the community basically sort of attempts to really strangle them back to Islam. So they cut off their, their credit card, their cash, they take their passport, their ability to earn a living. And so I thought about it and I prayed about it. And 
the board at the time said, look, let's set up a, a small fund and we'll use those funds to help these people get out of trouble. And uh, what started as a, a little $100,000 a year fund to help these people is now a $7 million a year organization that uh, takes uh, cases. You know, last year we helped 46,000 people, Christian, persecuted Christians, helps cases from various uh, forms of persecution where we take them and help them get them into safe housing, get them out of a, a, a dangerous situation, and, and even into what we call enduring livelihood, which are uh, little packages of grants that help them establish a, a business or establish a, a way of, of earning uh, income outside of, uh, of the society, which disagrees with what they're doing. Wow. <laughs> That is wonderful. Uh, and I want to get into the details of that. You, uh, you know, I'm a pastor's kid too. Okay. That's so great. we both survived it uh, somehow. <laughs> That's good. It's kind of amazing, isn't it? Um, yeah. The, the, uh, what, what tell the, did you come to the Lord early in your life? I mean, did you have an encounter early with what, what, what was your own faith journey like? I mean, when I was seven, I definitely remember my father uh, talking to me about the Lord and about the need to to receive Him as a as Savior. And I, I think in that moment, I probably did it because I trusted my dad. I knew that he yeah. had his my best interest in mind. Um, but and and I, I I would say that I was a good person uh, through high school and and into college. And I, I think I was a Christian. I was probably just not growing. Uh, but my senior year in college, there was a, a river accident that took place uh, between me and, and three friends. We had gone to canoe a river. And uh, the, the hydroelectric dam had been released upstream when we went out on this canoe. And two of my friends almost died that day. Um, we, we ultimately, we, those two were rescued and they spent time in a hospital, but the Lord really spoke to me in a very clear and unique way that day. It was April 26, 2001. And yeah, I just knew something had changed and something, the way that I, the way that I viewed the world, the way that I viewed work, the way that I, I think I, I viewed sin was all, it all changed that day. And um, so I, my, my wife and I often debate, was that the day that I was saved? Um, <laughs> I, I don't know. I definitely know that I came to a much more real understanding concerning the Lord and, and my devotion to him certainly went to a new level. Yeah, that's, that's, that's so true. Um, I think I probably have a pretty similar story to that. Um, you know, where there's a journey, a faith journey that maybe starts young, but then has moments of real deepening and, and kind of changing uh, based on life experiences and, and like you had. So I think that's fantastic. And I think it's great that you're building on the legacy of your dad. And I've read a little bit about Dr. Yusuf and it's, that's, uh, that's also wonderful. Um, and that you've stepped out and built this, you know, help the persecuted. It's, it's really great. So I want to talk about, first of all, the situation. So people that are watching this are not going to know because I had very little idea until I started reading about you. People are not going to know about the situation that's actually happening in the world. 
uh, in terms of persecute the persecution and you're talking specifically about the persecution of christians so educate us in terms of what is actually happening in the world as it relates to persecution of christians the numbers where how and so forth well um during the trump administration era uh president trump and vice president pence would have these regular uh uh, meetings at the State Department in the summertime regarding this issue of persecution. And it was really broad, broad kind of a broad persecution conference, this uh, religious freedom ministerial is what they called it. And Ambassador Brownback was the one who really put all that together. But it focused on persecution globally. And at those conferences, they would often say that the most persecuted religion in the world today is Christianity. And I, I think that caught a lot of people by surprise. Uh, that 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 data point catches people by surprise because we don't experience that necessarily in the West, in the U.S. or Canada or Australia or England. But the rest of the world, which is really a majority of the world's population, uh, the reality is for the Christian population, they are operating in a minority uh, op uh, paradigm. And so uh, whether it's within the Islamic uh, world, the Christian minority experiences a heavy degree of persecution, or it's in China, where, where there's still continues to be crackdown on uh, Christian pastors and church leaders. So uh, it is hard for people in the West to understand that, but the, it, is a big, it is a big issue, and particularly in the Middle East, North Africa, Central Asia, as you look at Iran and Afghanistan, there's not just a, a persecution at a state level, because some of those countries are absolutely uh, working very hard to eradicate uh, the Christian church, but not just at a state level, but at a familial level. So families, uh, in fact, probably more so than the state, are persecuting uh, their own people when they leave Islam, whether they leave Islam for an atheism or a, a, an agnostic kind of view, or, or Christianity. And so that is the reality globally of where, of where the church sits. And I've heard, uh, talking about the state, I mean, I think about India. I, I work for an organization that's done a lot of work in India, and I forget what you call those brown coat, uh, you know, people, but, uh, but there's, a lot of persecution of Christians in India, isn't there? There are, and and it's uh, it's surprising because you've got down in Kerala in the west, south and west, you've got a good Christian population, uh, but but they they the state you know the the Hindu population can actually be quite um, antagonistic uh, towards Christians, not just right. the, not just Muslims. Uh, there's, you know, I've often thought that maybe over time, as India becomes more capitalistic, that they might change their course, but it doesn't appear that that's, that's been the case. Uh, pr probably the worst state-sponsored terrorist states are, would be Iran and Afghanistan. Uh, Iran takes it to another level. I mean, there's many, there's very few Iranian Christians, including one on our, two on our staff, one in Iran and one in, in a neighboring country. Uh, but uh, they both have spent time in jail, uh, significant. One, one, is, one spent three years in jail uh, for his faith. 
And so, uh, th and this is just commonplace when you talk to Iranian Christians, uh, they, they suffer significantly. Wow. And so, um, in in some of the literature here, I, I saw that it says more than 360 million face extreme persecution worldwide. Every two hours, a Christian is killed for their faith. Um, Christians in the Muslim world are often seen as second-class citizens and treated accordingly. And mo Muslims who come to faith in Christ face possible death, torture, loss of family, and employment. So there is a lot of suffering that's going on in relationship to this. And so talk about the vision, what, what Help the Persecuted does, how you do it, and kind of the vision for, for your involvement. Yeah, so we are essentially you know, ministers of the gospel who seek to rescue, restore, and rebuild the lives of persecuted Christians. And for us, that takes on uh, a different uh it, it looks different in different situations. There's not a, a cookie cutter approach, but broadly speaking, we like to see people flourish in their own community. We, we don't want to just remove them uh, from danger and, and bring them to Canada, the U.S. And, and Australia and have them come to the West. We actually want to see them grow in their own, in their own communities and, and establish themselves. So we have uh, a Muslim, what we call MBBs, uh, Muslim background believers. And so we want Muslim background believers to meet other Muslim background believers and have children and grow the MBB church. And so a lot of times uh, that looks different in different uh, environments, but we will sometimes remove someone if, if they're in grave, grave danger, we might remove them from one Arab state, one Arab country to another Arab country. And what this is another thing that I think Westerners find uh, challenging to get their heads around is that even in the most moderate Islamic state or, or Arab state, uh, your ID card, your, your driver's license card, your birth certificate, everything has your religion on it. And so uh, and not just your religion on your ID card, but even, even would people would know by your birth name, whether you're a Christian or a Muslim. So this, this idea of identity, of religious identity is so baked into every aspect of these people's lives that they, in some, time, in some cases, they cannot remove themselves from that. So they cannot pull away from that identity. And so we will sometimes move them to a neighboring country where, in a sense, they take on a new identity. They can establish themselves in that country, remove the, the religion uh, from their ID card, and, and establish themselves as a, as a Christian. And so... Um, and, 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 the, and the local community doesn't know who they are because they're new. So we, we've done that in many cases, but we've removed them and brought them into a new community where they flourish and grow. And you have whole churches, whole uh, congregations that would be made up of just converts, no, no ethnic Christians um, in, in their population. So it takes on different forms for, for each case. Uh, in some cases, uh, we can remove them from a city within their, their country and into another city. And we have these cases called, um, we call it enduring livelihood, where they are kind of small grants to help set up a business. And then we have a process whereby we track the performance of that business and help them with their business plan and the modeling of that. Uh, and it's been very exciting to see that it's not only created jobs for people who, who were essentially jobless and uh, kept out of the job market, but it's in crea they've created jobs for people just like them, converts who come 
and and work in their uh, in their in their business in their shop in their factory or whatever it is. Wow. <laughs> and how do how do they find you? Do they find you through the safe houses that you set up, or how, how do they find you to get help? So we have, I mean, our our team have established themselves uh, within the community. So there is a lot of word of mouth. There are also what we call trusted partners. Um, we have a, a dear brother who's probably uh, the greatest evangelist to the Muslim world in our lifetime, possibly since Islam. Uh, he has a wonderful social media following, and he's on a lot of TV channels in the Middle East. And he feeds cases to us, so he gets uh, 10,000 communications a month from the Muslim world. He has over 2 million Facebook followers, 300,000 YouTube subscribers, and he is bombarded, inundated with persecution cases. And then he sends those cases to us. Our team then go and respond to those cases and make sure that those people are who they say they are and follow up with them. Wow. And so describe kind of the work of this, of like the safe houses. I mean, I know you guys have, I think I read, um, you know, distributing thousands of these emergency relief kits and then setting up safe houses, but talk about some of the practical, what does it look like on the ground in terms of what you're doing? Sure. So, um, a lot of times, we, I think we're at about 18 safe houses now uh, throughout the region, really from Morocco all the way to, to Iran. Uh, the safe houses, uh, sometimes we do like whole apartment blocks. So in some cases, we would just rent just one apartment. Um, those apartments are designated really for the extreme cases of people that need what we might call like a lightning case. A lightning case is where someone needs to get out of a dangerous situation right now. Um, the long-term rentals, like when we do long-term, we would, we would actually do that as a case and we would actually just help them with their cost of living expenses. But in the safe housing, those are more immediate needs uh, of getting out of a dangerous situation. And, and our reps in, in those countries manage those properties. We do run into the occasional um, uh, breakdown where uh, maybe someone's phone is stolen or some information is leaked and uh, we have to close down a location and we have to set up a, another location. We had that happen in Egypt recently where uh, our safe house was raided uh, after a, a woman whose parents had claimed that we had stolen her, kidnapped her and brainwashed her uh, they then went to the authorities, and that that exposed the whole um, the whole house. So we do run a risk with that. We our team actually run some of the greatest risk because they they will oftentimes rent these places in their own name. So there is a complexity to to how we structure these these various lease agreements and and uh, how we control these assets. So safe houses, emergency relief kits. You're actually um underwriting business creation of small businesses micro you know businesses it sounds like to to, to establish sustainability for people who are relocating is that right yeah so roughly about a third of our expenses are safe housing and then you're probably looking at about 15 percent are on the enduring livelihood uh, and the remaining balance is more um uh, cost of living and lightning funds uh you know that those would be your majority of your of our expenses okay mm -hmm. 
that's that's um, that's amazing um how do people so how, how who who helps fund this and how do people get involved if they wanted to help fund or you know support this we're primar primarily uh, individual gifts uh, that come through uh, individual donors in the U.S. and and Australia and, and Canada and U.K. as well. We actually have charities in those uh, countries, and then uh, foundations. So we have uh, some foundation giving, and churches are actually uh, increasingly becoming uh, a more significant funding source for us. But uh, yeah, we started with just a handful of supporters, just a couple hundred supporters, and we've really grown that. Uh, in addition to growing kind of the donor network, there's been a prayer network that has grown. I mean, when we first launched, I think we had just a couple of hundred people who got our prayer points every Saturday morning. And now I think we're over 7,000 people receiving uh, our prayer points every Saturday morning. Um, wow. So we're, we are heavily dependent on, on support, financial support, as well as those people who commit to praying individually for our team and our, and our, our cases. Yeah. I just think it's so important that actually, you know, the actual realities that are happening. I mean, people need to to learn about this. I mean, people mm -hmm. need to know. Because, um, I mean, I had no idea the, the the magnitude. I knew because I did a little bit of work in in India. I knew a little bit about, about what was going on there, but I, I didn't understand the magnitude of it. Before we, we go, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening right now? Because I think a lot of people are interested in Afghanistan. Dean, this has been the craziest six months of my life. Um, what we have seen and witnessed beginning August 15th in Afghanistan uh, was something I, I don't think I could have ever imagined uh, uh, in terms of, of, of a decline that quickly. Um, when the Taliban came into Afghanistan, uh, I, I think it caught a lot of people by surprise, including you know, international observers and the U.S., obviously the U.S. embassy and the U.S. government. But the, uh, the way, the, the manner in which we withdrew, the U.S. withdrew, and the, 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 the attack that the Taliban uh, made on, on, the, on the Christian community and other minorities was uh, was swift and so um we we had many many uh, christian uh christians on our list that had come through uh, afghan bible college afghan christian council who had family members disappearing in the middle of the night they had messages coming to their phone saying we know who you are we know where you are we're eventually going to catch up with you and so we, we really had to spring into action, and God gave us a, a wonderful team of uh, Hazara, which is a minority Shia population of Hazaras, who really safe housed a lot of these Christians, uh, primarily in the northern part of the state of, of the country, and uh, we were able to uh, keep them alive through a series of, of uh, cash houses and uh, different financial arrangements that we had in Afghanistan. Uh, for safe housing. And then on October 20th, we did two flights uh, out with about 400 Christians, uh, again, through those two sources, Afghan Bible College and Afghan Christian Council. And we currently have them in, in Abu Dhabi in a humanitarian village city uh, refugee camp. And it's been slow. A lot of these people have been stuck for, you know, 150, 200 days. And so, um, 
we're hopeful that Western nations are going to step up and take these people. We, we're hearing some positive news lately that the U.S. will will send some planes in to bring bring these people out. But there are still, our guess is there's probably a few hundred Christians still left in Afghanistan uh, that are in hiding. We had some people that were supposed to make our flight on October 20th that didn't. And they're literally going from location to location, running from the Taliban. Um, and it is, uh, it's a horrifying thing that, that we're witnessing. Uh, and obviously Ukraine has kind of eclipsed that. And, but, but the reality is, is the Taliban is, is not, they're not letting up. And uh, they are very much going to, uh, they, wanna, they wanna eradicate any minority or anybody who does not uh, subscribe to their their form of Islam? Wow. So we got a lot to pray about. We got a lot to <laughs> you, 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 and 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 your team. I certainly uh, admire and applaud what you're doing. Uh, I'm glad that we get to spread the word. Is it http.org? That's right. Http.org. Http.org. Help the persecuted. Uh, Josh Yusuf, thank you. Thanks for what you're doing, and we're with you, and we'll be praying. I, I need to be added to your prayer to your Saturday morning prayer list. We'll make it happen. Thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. It's great to have you, and thanks for joining us. We'll see you next time.